Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from the Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, A Living Faith, discussing the book of James. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. So we're starting a new series to start the year in the book of James, and we're calling it A Living Faith, a title derived from the most famous verse in the book of James, uh, quite possibly the one that tells us that faith without works is dead. James is a wonderful book that, that uh, out of the whole New Testament, is, is the one that possibly most mirrors um, like wisdom literature, like, like Proverbs. In fact, you could say, and some would say, that the book is most influenced by both Proverbs and Jesus' fam- famous Sermon on the Mount. And so the question you might ask is, well, who is this James? There are some famous Jameses in the Bible. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, James, the son of Zebedee. Both come to mind, but this James, the James that penned this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus. Different biological dad, right? If, if this were a different James, he would probably have to signify or, or kind of make note of which James he was when he wrote this letter. But, but being that it's James, the half-brother of Jesus, he's a pillar in the church at this time, just James would have been enough for everyone to know. He goes by one name. He is James. My first name is James, by the way. Did you know that? And so, If you don't know me that well, a little piece of trivia uh, for you today. Don't call me that, but that is my first name. Um, James, this book, is a general letter, though his audience clearly appears to be Jewish. He was a leader of a messianic mother church in Jerusalem, and they, and they lived through persecution and poverty, and they lived through famine. And in James, uh, the letter, had a bit of a tough time making it into being recognized by the Eastern and Western church as canonical. It was, uh, wasn't until the fourth century that that happened, though it was widely known and used before that. Before they said it was scripture, people kind of viewed it that way. And James, if you know a little bit about church history, was famously disparaged uh, by the, the famous reformer, Martin Luther, who referred to it as an epistle of straw and said that it mangles the scriptures and thereby opposes Paul and all scripture. But juicy history aside, James is in our Bible. It's an excellent letter and it has much to teach us. And over the next, I believe, eight weeks, we're going to see that. So this morning we're going to read from James 1, 1 through 18, and I'm going to give you a moment to turn in your Bibles. Uh, it feels good to say the spiel again after like 10 weeks of topical preaching. I'm going to give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find the reading, I do believe, on the screen behind me. And if you don't own a Bible at all, or if you don't have a Bible that you can understand, please see me afterwards. It would be a joy for me to give you a Bible to take home with you that you can love and read and understand. So James 1, 1 through 18 this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. 
That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the one James calls Lord, in fact. Think about this for a moment. From James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James is the half-brother of Jesus, the younger brother of Jesus. James grew up with Jesus. He saw him day in and day out. He sat at breakfast with Jesus. He played with Jesus. He probably lost games to Jesus. Jesus was the older one, right? Some of you probably got beat by your older siblings in everything as kids. Or you were the older sibling doing all the winning, one of the two. And then Jesus, he goes out and he becomes this famous rabbi. And like him or not, people knew Jesus. Jesus goes on to be the most famous figure in human history Sorry, Beatles, you weren't actually more famous than Jesus. Rob, that's my one Beatles reference probably of all time in a sermon. James could be the jealous, sad sack, younger brother. But instead, James looks at Jesus. James, who witnessed Jesus not just for three years at his peak like the disciples, but Jesus as a kid, Jesus in moody teenage years, Jesus coming into adulthood. This James, he saw all of that. And he said, this Jesus is Lord. He is Lord and I will give my life to follow him. What a witness to the perfection of the life of Jesus. If anyone would know that Jesus isn't who he said he is, if anyone could tell you that there was a disparity between Jesus's public and private life, it would be James. But James said, no, Jesus is the real deal. He's the same at home and in front of crowds. He is Lord and he is worthy of your whole life. In John 7, we learn that Jesus' brothers didn't believe initially. Of course, how could our brother be the Lord God incarnate? And in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we learn that James, or Jesus appeared to James alone. And you just try to imagine the heart-to-heart James had with his resurrected half-brother from being the unbelieving little brother to a pillar in the early church, an author of the book of the Bible, and a wise Jesus follower. That is who James became. So we reflected a bit on the beginning of this passage just a few weeks ago, you might remember, as we lit the joy candle in week three of Advent. This James tells these dispersed Jews that make up his audience, or the majority of it, consider it great joy. 
Other translation possibilities are consider it nothing but joy, consider it all joy, consider it full joy, consider it greatest joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Consider it joy. Don't go into like full Eeyore mode. Don't don't start to pity yourself. Consider it joy. Now, don't say that your trial is not a bad thing. A trial is a bad thing. You can identify it as a trial. If it weren't a trial, then James wouldn't have to advise you to consider it joy because, but a trial is bad. And yet he says, consider it all joy. Consider it the greatest joy. Saying, hold those things in tension. On this end, this is a trial. It's really bad. But on the other end, it's the greatest joy to go through a trial. A trial is not what I would call the greatest joy. Being a father, maybe I would call the greatest joy. Being a husband, maybe I would call the greatest joy. If I'm being really spiritual, I I would say knowing Christ and being known by him is the greatest joy. But trials don't normally make my top 10 greatest joys list. But James says when you go through trials, consider it all joy. Now, he isn't saying consider it all joy, you know, because who doesn't love a good trial? It's not saying be a masochist, but this also isn't hedonism either. It's not you should pursue pleasure at any cost. Don't revel in pain, but don't, but don't avoid it at all costs either, he's saying. Rather, when you're going through it, count it all joy. Why? Again, not because pain actually is pleasure, no, but because of what results from it when you suffer through trials well. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Trials test your faith. If you go through something hard in life and, and you lose your faith because of it, well, there you go, I guess. But if you go through something hard and you lean on the Lord and you get through it, you've gained endurance. And you go through the next trial and you think, if the Lord got me through that, he'll get me through this. Maybe, maybe you've met these rugged old saints who have just been through it. And I know a few of them. They have been through it all in their life. And they have trusted Jesus for a long time. And suffering hasn't destroyed them. Suffering hasn't destroyed them. No, instead, suffering has somehow made them indestructible. They have endurance. I, I hope you know saints like this this morning. Where you're like, it does not matter what happens to these people. They are not going to let go of Jesus. I hope you know them and I hope you are becoming one of them. I hope you're becoming one of them. And endurance, if and when you let it have its full effect on you, will leave you complete. Endurance, someone pointed out, maybe, maybe it was Keller, maybe someone else, I don't remember at this point. I, endurance means perseverance or to stand your ground, but the prefix is like the word hyper, like hyper stand your ground, like really, really stand your ground. Perseverance isn't passive, it's active. Perseverance isn't just not being bowled over by a wave. If a wave hits you and you don't brace yourself, you get bowled over. But if you see that wave coming and you brace yourself, You can stand your ground. You must hyper stand your ground. Really stand your ground actively, not passively. For the saints that have done this time and time again, 
they gain endurance and they become mature and they become complete and, and they become the kind of people you want to be like when you grow up. And we know Jesus experienced trials and time and time again, he persevered even up into his death on the cross. And James, as he writes this, he's surely thinking about his big brother. But if you're not complete, he says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. It would appear from the scriptures, from this verse in James, that the one thing that God gives without exception is wisdom. He gives wisdom to all generously and ungrudgingly. You ask for it and you get it. You want wisdom? Surely seems like it's on offer from the Lord. With a caveat, ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like one driven and tossed by the wind. Now, and, and if you ask like that, it says you shouldn't expect anything. Now, you might be like me, and you think, well, well, what does it mean without doubting? I have to somehow muster up 100% assurance that this is going to come true, or God cannot possibly give it to me? I'm doomed. When do I ever ask for something and believe 100% I'm going to get it? What a neurotic person our pastor is, you might think. But here's what one commentator says about it. A double-minded person is one whose devotion to God is less than total. His attention is divided between God and other things, and as a consequence, he is unstable, and therefore he is unable to receive from God. And so we're not so much talking about this in the sense that we twist God's arm by believing so hard, like we manipulate God by believing so hard that he's going to do something. But rather, it must be that in our request for wisdom, that God is the object of our devotion. We must want wisdom to live a life for God and walk in his ways. This, this isn't like something where you could get like politicians and business leaders who don't give a rip about Jesus to just magically say this prayer with full confidence and God will tell them the next best thing to do in their area of work. I don't think that's what this means. No, I think if they did that, the wisdom they would receive would be put your trust in Jesus and follow him. This is a wisdom for followers of Jesus that this passage is talking about here. So as a follower of Jesus, devoted to him, wanting his kingdom first, ask and you will receive wisdom. So we talked about how trials and suffering are something this community is familiar with. Then we talked about wisdom and the need for it, which every Christian is familiar with, and they were no exception. And now James is about to talk about money. And even though your Bible, if you're holding a physical Bible in front of you, this passage isn't broken up like Proverbs is, you can see how this feels a little proverbial, can't you? So starting in verse nine, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich will wither away while pursuing his activities. So these are people who are overall dealing with a lot of financial issues as a whole. It doesn't mean every single person in James' audience or in the church as a whole is impoverished, but there's a lot of that. And so James tells them, let the brother, and by brother he means the person who's a follower of Jesus, let the brother or sister who is of humble circumstances, 
and by that he means doesn't have a lot of money, who's struggling, or who's even destitute, let that person boast. Now, much like counting trials as pure joy, boasting in poverty is kind of counterintuitive. We don't normally get poor and say, this is awesome, right? But this isn't meant to be like contrarian wisdom. Most people don't like trials, but I like them, right? Most people don't like being impoverished, but I love it, right? No, that's insanity. Rather, he's saying, exalt in your humble status because, see, there's a good reason for it. It's not nonsense. Because God will exalt you in the age to come. Rejoice in your humble status because you will inherit everything that belongs to Jesus. You will reign with Jesus. You are heirs. You can boast in your later exaltation in this upside-down kingdom of God. Your present status financially is not and will not be the end of your story. You can boast in that. And today, sitting here, you can boast in that. Money might be tight, but God's got you, and one day you will be with him and you will lack nothing. Your worries in this life will not carry over to the next if you're a Christian. And he says, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. There's some conversation about this. Talking about the poor, it referred to them as a brother. But here just says the rich. Is James saying that the rich are not brothers? Are these rich people not part of God's family? Let the rich boast in his humiliation. Why would you boast in your humiliation? Is James making a sarcastic dig at rich people and their fate? It wouldn't seem so. James doesn't do that anywhere else in this book. He doesn't employ that type of literary device anywhere else in this book, so I wouldn't assume he's doing it here. So what is he saying? One day you will perish. You will die. And you cannot take your wealth with you. And whether it's by your design or not, in this life, if you're wealthy, your wealth has distinguished you. You are wealthy. Other people are not. You walk into the church meeting and your brothers and sisters are poor and they notice that you're not poor. There's a clear juxtaposition when you see the haves and the have-nots side by side, right? And one day, James says, the have-nots will be elevated. They will have. And the haves... It's not that they'll be treated badly, but that thing that distinguished them in this life, their wealth, it will not distinguish them in the age to come. They won't have status based on wealth anymore. If you were considered to be above everyone else and then something happened and you were considered to be not above everyone else, but like everyone else, what would we call that? We would call that humbling. We would call that humiliation is another word for humbling. You're being humbled. And it's all because you're part of a kingdom with different rules and metrics. And you'll be with Jesus and you'll be free of death and stress and shame and anxiety and free from the presence of sin. So you can say as the rich person right now, the world sees me as better than other people perhaps, but in a more desirable circumstance in the kingdom of God one day, in the age to come, I will not have that kind of status anymore. So in that way, I will be humbled. But I can boast because it's way better than anything that my wealth and status on this earth affords me. And if I really want that, if I really want that life, that kingdom, if I really want Jesus more than anything else, I'll hold my wealth loosely. I'll give to those in need. 
because I don't look forward to my next purchase or cling to the security here, but I look forward to the resurrection life and the security of being in the presence of the Lord forever. I will pass away one day and my wealth will belong to someone else and I will have nothing but Jesus and I will be happier than I could ever imagine. So as a rich person, I can boast that all of this is fleeting. That's what James is saying. I'm not a rich person, by the way. As verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Rich Christians can boast in the fact that all of their wealth is perishing, and that they will pass away because they will trade in the worthless riches of this world for the crown of life. They will trade in the good things for the one who saved us. What an easy trade that will be for them one day. Verse 13 through 15. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. When you're tempted... The Bible tells us that isn't God. God does not tempt you. He allows you to be tempted, but he's not tempting you. And it's interesting because we know Jesus was tempted by the devil, but but who are you being tempted by? Who does James point to that's tempting you? Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And you should be careful. Your desire can conceive and give birth to sin. And if you don't slaughter that sin baby, it will grow all the way up and it will give birth to death. Your sin can pull you away from Jesus. And so you must guard your desires. You must cultivate other desires. Desires for God and his word and walking in his ways. And you can only do that from a relationship with him, walking closely with him in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Are you allowing your desires to rule you this morning? Are you sinning and believing the old adage, the devil made me do it? Are you believing maybe even that God is tempting you? I, I don't imagine so. I think it's much more common to see temptation is coming from the devil on your shoulder like in an old Looney Tunes cartoon. Some of you have seen that, yeah? But it's our own evil desires, and so we must work to desire something else. It's something coming from within our own heart that leads us to sin. So we must cultivate desire for Jesus. Jared Wilson, in his book, Friendship with the Friend of Sinners, which I'm reading right now, and it's great, and you should go get it. Uh, he, He says this about desires. When your desires are disordered, you'll see worth in unworthy places. When your desires are disordered, you'll hold cheap things as costly and costly things as cheap. And he's right. It's this very mistake that leads us to sin. What's valuable to me? It might be something like you might decide that for you, looking good is valuable to you. I'll I'll lie to save face so that I can look good. My reputation is worthy. Jesus is not. Or to answer the question, what's valuable to me? You might say pleasure is valuable to me. So I'll pursue lust. Jesus isn't worthy. It's about my pleasure. Or what's valuable to me? It might be having more and more and more. I'll hoard my wealth. I won't give give to my church. I won't give to people in need. Money is what's valuable to me. Jesus is less so. But if you rightly order your desires so that you see worth 
in the worthy one, that you see Jesus as worthy as your whole life, then you, become, you begin to see it as too great of a cost to give yourself to anything less. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What doesn't God give us? Temptation. What does God give us? Every good and perfect gift. And God does not change. And so in the future, what will God give us? Every good and perfect gift. In the future, what won't God do? He won't tempt you. He's the same always. He doesn't change. In in fact, if you sit here and you're a Christian, by his own choice, he gave you a new birth. He gave you new life in him. You're a Christian because of him. What better gift is there than that? And so you can trust him. He gives good and perfect gifts. All good and perfect gifts come from him. He does not do or cause our sinning. He does not do or cause our tempting. That's us. It's him that does the saving. Amen. So this morning, we went through a lot of scripture at a fast pace. That should have been two probably more elaborate sermons, but as I scheduled the first quarter of the year, this is kind of how I felt like it needed to happen. So I hope you'll take this passage and and maybe reread it again this week and digest it and meditate on it and take it into your personal prayer life. But it's good for me to let it sit here too this morning. Maybe maybe in 10 years we'll, we'll rehash James, who knows? And that's okay too. But for today, that's as deep as we can go. And so I want you to know God loves to give you wisdom, church. In your trials, you can know that God is for you and that he goes through them with you. When you don't understand or know what to do, he promises you wisdom. If you're destitute, if you're poor, if you're barely scraping by, he has a future designed for you where it's going to be different. And if that's not you, if you have and you have plenty, don't rely on that money. It's fading and we're fading, but there's a resurrection life and an age to come and a crown of life for those who love Jesus to the end. Lean on that, not your wealth. And this God that I talk about this morning, he doesn't tempt you. That comes from your own heart. He doesn't tempt you. He only saves you. And he's so good to do it. And as I look around this room this morning, I see many saved ones, ones to whom he gave a new birth. And it's for, it's for people like that. We go through this thing every week called communion. And communion is this little meal that we have together. It's, it, it's not like a real meal, right? Like you're not full when you're done. You're not physically full when you're done. But, but you eat and in, in a way you drink. And you're remembering a time that our Lord ate and drank. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.